The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. So in the past couple of months, we have had quite a sea change in what is expected of the millions of holders of federal student loans. But let's just rewind. Back in March of 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, the government paused payments on student loans issued by the federal government. It was an extraordinary measure that was meant to help people with those loans during the pandemic, and it undoubtedly did help a lot of people stay afloat. It gave the economy a boost because of the spending that it allowed for. Then about two months ago, a provision in the debt ceiling deal that Congress passed said no more. These payments are coming back. And then a month later, the Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's proposed debt forgiveness plan. Bottom line, payments on these loans are set to resume in October. And this could have a big impact on the economy because the federal student loan portfolio totals more than $1.6 trillion owed by $43 million borrowers. Precisely what will happen is a little unclear, but it's very likely we will see a drop in consumer spending. And as we follow the breadcrumbs, we need to ask what the impact could be on corporate profits, on the stock market, on housing, on inflation. Now, among those with federal student loans, about half are under age 35. The other half are over age 35. So today, we will explore the new rules of income-based repayment and how that can help. Separate from the student loan news, but related, the CEO of LinkedIn last year made a controversial claim saying that skills, not degrees, matter most when hiring new employees. Between comments like this and the massive debt burden that borrowers face, it's really no surprise that college enrollment is declining a bit. From 2010 to 2021, undergraduate enrollment dropped by 15%. That translates to about 2.6 million fewer students. Today, according to the Brookings Institution, 56% of adults say that a four-year college degree is quote-unquote not worth the cost. We're going to dig into this as well and tackle the question, 
Is college worth it? And if the answer is no, what are the alternatives? For help with this, I am joined by the amazing Andy Smith. Andy is a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. Thanks for being here. Good to see you as always. Jean, I have two teenagers at home. It is great to be seen at this point in my life. So (laughs) thank you very much. You know, you talked about the income-based repayment. You've done some media, some hits on this. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing, what you're telling people, you know, on that side. I know we're covering in meetings as people talk about what their kids need to be thinking about or their grandkids. What are you seeing? What are you showing right now on that income-based repayment? If you haven't looked at income-based repayment in a while, it's time to take another look. There were some changes to these plans unveiled back at the beginning of the year, a new plan called the SAVE plan, which is going to replace what's called the repay plan. And talk real quick about what income-based repayment actually is. It is a mechanism for people who hold federal student loans, not private student loans, to have the amount that they have to pay on a monthly basis based on their discretionary income. And so if you're not earning a ton of money, you put your income and your other data into basically a computer with the Department of Education. They run some numbers and they say, based on you, your income, your debt, this is your payment. And you have to re-register for these programs every year. It's a little bit onerous, but it can drop your payment to a very small percentage of your discretionary income. And what this new payment does, this new save plan, is is actually make it even smaller. So previously for undergraduate students, they were looking at payments of no more than 10% of their discretionary income. This drops it to five. For graduate students, it was 15%. It drops it to 10. And after 20 years for undergraduate students, if there's any debt remaining, it gets wiped clean. It also changes a little bit the definition of what is discretionary income in the borrower's favor. All of which is to say, if this is something that you are struggling with, go to the Department of Education's website, run the numbers, and see if you can get some additional help. But the idea is that this is not a set it on the shelf and forget it sort of thing. This constantly evolves. Not only does it change, but then you have to go in and change this every year based on whatever your income is. Because or you have hopefully, the potential to do it. Well, no, you do. You yeah. have to go in because hopefully your income goes up. I mean, the government is hoping your income goes up and you can repay more of this money. Right. You should be hoping that your income goes up and you can repay more of this money. But it is a much, much needed break for people. And for people who earn very little money, their payments could be zero, but they could still be accumulating years toward that ultimate loan forgiveness. Very cool. So, yeah. So it's it's good. But let's dig into the flip side of the equation. For go parents the out there, go back to yeah. you, yeah. right? Go back to you. Go back to your children. Go back to people with younger kids. 
what what's your opinion of the best way to get ahead of this? What's the best way to actually save for college? Well, I think the, the thing that you have to realize is that you have to put this into your plan from the very beginning. This isn't something where, okay, juniors uh, four years away from college, what are we going to do? We see that a lot with retirement, right? Uh, I'm 50. I'm ready to start planning for retirement. You, you want to do this far far, you know, in, in the past for that. So there's a couple of different ways that you can go about it. There's the brokerage account route, right? Mm-hmm. You open just a taxable account, throw as much money as you want into it, take out as much money as you want for that. There's some issues, right? Tax efficiency. What are you going to use it for? Are you, you know, how are you going to actually invest and manage those dollars? I like the idea of the 529 savings account, right? So um, they're established by each state, Each 529 has some different options and some different strengths based on what's kind of key within that plan. Some are kind of better on the investment side. Some are better and offer some tax breaks to people who contribute. State of Indiana is one, for example. Um, You get a 20% state tax credit up to a grand. So theoretically, you could put in $5,000, get a $1,000 state tax credit. Um, And so there's, there's those sorts of options. The great thing about 529s is that everything is able to grow tax deferred. And as long as you pull out the money for qualified education expenses, which at this point could be a ton of different things or a lot of different things, everything comes out tax-free. Yeah, I use these for my own children to send them to college. I I use New York's plan. And, you know, there are a lot of different plans and not all of them are as good as the one in the next state. But no, it was a great way to save and a really easy way to save because I automated my contributions and, and, and the accounts are, are pretty flexible as well, right? They're very flexible. You can pull it out for darn near anything at this point. You can't necessarily pull it out for new cars. You can't pull it out for kind of ancillary expenses. But if it's a qualified education expense, uh, we even see the ability to pull out for secondary, qualified secondary education expenses. So if you're going to private schools, private tuitions, parochial schools, that's the option as well. But the idea is what I encourage you is to not get kind of hung up on which state you're going to use. The idea is that you want to save as much as you can for as long as you can. And so don't necessarily worry about what color handle screwdriver you're using. Just get the screwdriver and start working on the project. What if the child doesn't use the money? I hear this sometimes from my listeners at her money, right? They have a couple of kids. They're looking at these kids and they're thinking, okay, I don't think this one's going to college. I think this one might be going off and working on an organic farm. I, right. You know, what What happens if I've been stashing money away for this child and this child doesn't want to go to college? So a couple of different options. You can direct any funds to another child in the family, a parent, a grandparent, sibling or cousin. There's qualified kind of family members that you can change the beneficiary to. Recently, with some tax code changes, there's the Roth IRA rollover option yep. for beneficiaries for that. So it's not necessarily a, you're going to put the money into the 529 and it's this deep, dark, bottomless hole that you can never pull out. Worst case scenario, you pull out the money and you pay the taxes and the penalty, right? So it's it's not kind of a completely locked up sort of account, but you do have some options. The first place that I tell people to, to look at is just looking at some other family members. Yeah, but I love the Roth rollover. Actually, I ended up with a little bit of additional money in my 
529s. And I, I've thought about, all right, maybe I'll just rename those accounts for my eventual grandchildren right. and let them grow for a really long time. But I also have thought, okay, my kids could probably use some of this money to buy a house. We roll it into a Roth. They can actually do that. Well, I talked about that with a client uh, this past week. So he had considerable amounts of money in his 529. He ended up being able to cash flow the tuition payments. So he still wanted the 529s to grow, doesn't necessarily want to touch them. So we were working through, what do you do? And so, yeah, he could rename the 529s into his own name, right? right? And so he can use it. But when we started to explore the Roth IRA option, especially as an estate planning tool, it was fantastic because then he could start thinking about his kids, his grandkids, and kind of unlocking these dollars, still able to grow tax deferred for a lot of different things. Well, that's interesting, right? You you mentioned it, he had a lot of money. So this Roth IRA rollover is capped per person at $35,000. So how are you, are you opening like different accounts, moving the money into different accounts and then rolling from those different accounts to get it into more hands? He's talking with his CPA first yeah. um, to try to see kind of what is necessary. We're trying to blow out the 529s as much as possible for this last year of expenses, trying to push everything through. So he has two kids two 529 accounts. So what can he do with one? Rename, move things over, and for that. So it's basically this pot of money. Where are we moving? What are we doing? How are we titling all the way through? But the idea is, again, it's not this deep, dark, bottomless hole that you just throw money into right. and you can't ever get money back out. All right. That's what to do. Let's <laughs> yeah. talk about what not to do. I know you've seen people make some errors when it comes to trying to plan ahead for college, which, of course, is the ultimate frustration, right? You're trying right. to do the right thing, and you end up running afoul of rules and laws and taxes. What do you see people doing that they shouldn't do? Uh, the big problem, the, the first big problem that I see is probably using home equity for some sort of college payment. You know, this yes, this, in the short term, this allows the child to attend college, but basically it could destroy your retirement plans. How does that happen? Yeah, so suppose you bought your home in your 30s, right? You With a 30-year mortgage, you knew it was going to be paid off by the time that you retired. And so now you've got this great deal, this great amount of equity in your house. And yes, you could pull out that equity to send somebody to school, but what happens is it's basically destroying your overall wealth. Yeah. And so what happens if you end, if you go this route, what you could end up three, four, five times deeper in debt. And now you're that much closer to retirement. You don't have the years to be able to recuperate and recover the way that you did in your thirties. You get a 30 year mortgage in your thirties, rates were lower, right? Yeah. Now, so all of a sudden you refinance, you pull out equity. You have a five-year adjustable arm, 10-year adjustable arm. Where are rates going to be? So you have all of these plans in place. Yes, you sent junior to college, but at the detriment of, of your own plans. You can borrow for just about anything at this point. You cannot borrow for retirement. And I think that a paid-off mortgage is just a supplemental retirement savings account. You know, it is just a pool of money that you can access down the road. It's very flexible. You can move, you can draw on it, but you're going to want that paid off pool of money before 
you hit your 70s or 80s. Yeah, I could I could argue effectively on either side of that. You know, you talk to the person who refinanced at two and a quarter. Yeah. And he's saying, well, I could stand on my head for the rest of my life and not worry about paying this down because you have other assets. Now, if you have significant debt elsewhere, if you're not sure about how long you're going to be able to work, if you're not sure about your social security strategy, your pension, you find out is underfunded. And so all of these different things are changing. You don't want to be in your 80s and still having to deal with these issues. Yes, it's great. It's very honorable that you want to send your kids to college or some sort of post-secondary education, right? Trade school, you know, anything else. But with interest rates where they are right now versus two, three, four, five years ago, it's almost a non-starter. All right. What's the second mistake you see people making? So it's college tuition prepayment plans. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two aspects of this. In most of the prepayment plans, a lot of schools, a lot of states sponsor these programs. And so you you basically put in a certain amount of money now with the idea that when the child turns 18, the tuition is already paid for. There are some caveats. There are some kind of particulars in the plan. The savings plan covers tuition only. Mm -hmm. So that's going to only account for, you know, 40 to, you know, 60% of that. You've got room and board. And so those are, you know, significantly additional costs. Uh, the child isn't guaranteed to be accepted into a state school. The child may not want to go to a state school. So you have all of these different things that you have to consider. So what sounds great in terms of that, hey, I can pay these lower costs now, and then everybody's going to be happy down the road. There are some things that you really have to be be aware of. For that. Well, what about and and there was a, a glowing article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago about the broad prepayment plan that allows you to go to like two hundred or more different schools across the country. Private, the private, the private college, yeah. yes. So these are great options. Um, so there's these private college five twenty nine plans. It's a cousin of the traditional five twenty nine plan. It works a little bit differently. So what it hap- what happens is families can lock in the tuition by paying these prepaid tuition certificates or buying these tuition certificates at the current price. And so the prepayment ends up saving, what, thousands of dollars for families with kids headed to private colleges. There's, what, 300 or so private colleges that are a part of this. The thing is, is that it, everything's just a little bit different. You want to make sure that it's not a complete payment option, right? You're paying a certain part with the idea that you're going to still be on the hook for some costs down the road. But those private college 529 plans are a great way to do some sort of prepayment here. All right. So here's a real life scenario. Yep. My brother's twin nieces are going to college next year. Um, My niece Dylan got into a great program at NYU. We're very proud of her. NYU is one of these schools. And they didn't do this plan. They've been in the New York 529, and they've been accumulating money that way. But by using this prepayment plan, they could lock in the second, third, and fourth years of tuition at today's rate. And we know college tuition is going up at, what, 6 7% a year, depending on the school. Are they better off doing... That and our parents who already know that their kids who are going to one of these schools who have not participated in this program better off trying to prepay now and lock in or are they better off just at today's rates, you know, putting the money in the money market option and letting it grow? It could be a push um, for that. So with the private college 529s, 
what you're buying, these prepaid certificates, account for a percentage of what the tuition is going to be down the road. So you're buying kind of the fixed amount now with this kind of question mark for whatever that is. So you're locking in a certain amount of costs. You could go that route. You could do the higher paying, like a high yield money market and kind of just, you know, bank the income and interest, you know, for that. What I'm encouraging people to do is kind of talk through these plans because what you thought was going to be the case in the past may not be what you're dealing with right now. The tools that you thought that you were going to be able to use in the past may not be what the the tools are now. Case in point, right? People loved in the past putting money in their kids' names. Right. Right. The UTMA, the UGMA, uniform transfer to minor, uniform gift to minor. This was a great idea when, you know, people are in high tax brackets, kids were in 0% tax brackets. But that loophole has closed. So all of these, you know, people that have done these things, the strategy doesn't work so well anymore. What happened? Um, tax codes change, you know, the yes, other, they the, do. Yeah. <laughs> the other issue is, and we saw that we've, we've seen this quite a bit. You're building these UGMA, UTMA accounts. Well, when the kid turns 18 or 21 in some states, the money's theirs, yeah. right? So you're still dealing. So they could spend it on a car. They could spend it on an expensive trip, something other than college. You're giving what could be a lot of money to somebody with still an underdeveloped sense of impulse control. And so that could be a huge issue in some situations. And the financial aid rules don't treat these accounts as kindly as they do 529s. Correct. So a family who has significant assets um, is less likely to qualify for the financial aid because under federal financial aid rules, putting the accounts in the parent's name actually increases the family's eligibility different than it does in the child's name. Tons of stuff, isn't it? So much stuff, yeah. making my head spin. And when we come back, it's going to spin a little more because we're going to dig into the question of whether all of this matters. Well, it's worth it, yeah. right? We're going to bring on a special guest. He's an expert in the evolution of education, and he's going to help us answer the question about whether or not you should send your kids to college in the first place. We'll talk about other ways you can launch your kids and help them get on their feet. Stick with us. Andy and I will be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. Gene Chatsky in the studio with Andy Smith. And we are welcoming a guest to the show. His name is Ryan Craig, and he's got a unique perspective on education and helping kids into the workforce, although he went to Yale and says that he appreciates the benefit of brand name universities. He also warns against expensive non-selective universities, especially for students without 
a clear sense of purpose. He is managing director at Achieve Partners, and he's written a book about all of this titled College Disrupted, A New You. He's also got another book coming out in November called Apprentice Nation, How the Earn and Learn Alternative to Higher Education Will Create a Stronger and Fairer America. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with me and with Andy. Great to be here. We were talking about student loan debt earlier in the show. When you look at the high amount of debt students are carrying, coupled with the fact that many are not completing their degrees and that we've got a huge amount of not unemployment in this country, but underemployment, would you say that higher education is just not working as it should? I would say that uh, colleges are doing as good a job as they've ever done uh, at equipping students with the cognitive skills, critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, communication skills, executive function skills that they need. Uh, but unfortunately, what's happened uh, over the last 20, 30 years is uh, something called digital transformation, <laughs> which is the economy has transformed. And virtually all good jobs uh, now require some combination of digital skills, platform skills that colleges and universities don't teach and really aren't interested uh, in teaching. And that's contributed to the underemployment that you're you're mentioning. Uh, the fact is that if everyone graduated from college into a $60,000 a year job, student loan debt, levels of student loan debt would be sustainable and students would be able to pay them back. Uh, so it's the fact that, as you say, uh, about half of all students who matriculate into a college or university don't complete uh, a program. Uh, and of those who complete, probably 40% are underemployed. Uh, and if you're underemployed in your first job, two-thirds of the time you're going to be underemployed. Uh, five years later, half the time you'll be underemployed a decade later. So uh, that's a problem. Uh, and, and that's why uh, the uh, primary issue, policy issue uh, in higher education uh, for the past three years has been debt forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, which is a completely backward-looking proposal, right? It only helps those whose loans are forgiven at the time uh, forgiveness occurs. It doesn't help, it doesn't address the fundamental challenges, which is that colleges and universities are charging a lot uh, for a product which isn't paying off uh, for uh, enough. So in summary, I would say college isn't broken, but college for all as a policy, meaning college as the only uh, socially acceptable pathway to uh, economic mobility uh, in this country, uh, that is broken. Well, you, you used the phrase paying off. College isn't paying off, which essentially you're talking about ROI. You're talking about return on investment. I hate to ask this question because I was an English major, but I was an English major with a lot of experience, with an internship every summer and jobs during the school year. So I guess I'm wondering, is there still the promised ROI? And if there isn't in the degree alone, how do we tweak the experience so that it is worth it? Yeah, look, I mean, it depends on where you go and it depends on what you study. If you're an English major at a highly selective uh, institution, you're probably going to be okay. If you're an English major at a regional public or a uh, non-selective uh, private university no one's ever heard of, uh, you're going to have a very hard time uh, making that degree pay off. Uh, you'd be much better off uh, if you're attending a non-selective school, majoring in engineering, 
uh, or computer science, uh, you're much more likely to uh, find a good a good first job, which will lead to a good second job, uh, and so on. So uh, the answer is it depends. Ryan, talk with us about job trends. What are you seeing right now in terms of what's happening kind of outside or beyond or even after that college education? What are you seeing with job trends? What are you seeing that's emerging right now in the job market? Well, I think the biggest trend, obviously, is AI. And, uh, you know, I've written a lot over the last uh, five, six years about digital transformation and the fact that uh, in order to get a good first job, you need to have digital skills, platform skills. Uh, you need to know Salesforce, for example. There are millions of jobs in the Salesforce uh, ecosystem, the, 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 the CRM platform. I was speaking a few years ago to a group of hundreds of college and university presidents and provosts, and I, I asked them, I said, you know, please raise your hand uh, if your school provides any coursework or, or training at all on the Salesforce platform. Not one hand went up uh, in the room. So that's that's a problem. Now, what I think the impact of AI uh, is likely to be uh, is it's actually going to narrow the skills gap. All of these digital platforms are going to have uh, generative AI interfaces. So you probably don't need to know the inner workings uh, of the platform in order to uh, do your job at a basic level. The problem is that while generative AI uh, will narrow the skills gap, uh, it's going to significantly uh, widen what we call the experience gap, which are jobs that basically uh, require you to have done the job or at least worked in the industry previously in order to get the job. And I point to cybersecurity uh, as a good example. To become a tier one analyst uh, in cybersecurity, you look at those job descriptions, uh, they're asking for sets of uh, skills and certifications that basically tell you that you need kind of two, three years experience in order to get that entry level cybersecurity job. So kind of turning entry level jobs into a bit of an oxymoron. And that's what generative AI is going to do. Generative, generative AI is in the process of eliminating uh, many, if not most of the menial tasks that uh, an entry-level worker uh, is expected to do, uh, which means that uh, they're going to be having, th they're going to need to do work, which today you would assume that, you know, someone with two, three years experience in the field would be able to do. And companies will be hiring for those those roles. So you'll need experience to get that good first uh, first job. So what will that do to the ability of somebody to even capture that, right? So it, it used to be, here's the start. Well, now we're saying the start is actually before because That's you right. need all of these other things. So how do you start to wrap your brain around what needs to happen? What's kind of the timeline that people need to be working within to even be able to function with this? Or, right. And so before you answer that, I mean, it seems to be a little bit of a shift on this internship culture, right? I mean, we've been telling kids in college for years, whether they're in a co-op program or whether they're spending their summers getting some real experience on their resume, that they need to have that real experience to get the first job. So where's the new paradigm? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think that uh, higher education institutions uh, need to think about three things. They need to think about work-integrated learning, the the uh, the ultimate example of that is what North Northeastern has uh, with its co-op program, where every year students are actually uh, taking two three months off and working in a full time uh, role uh, for an employer partner. Now that's very difficult for uh, your average university to set up. It took Northeastern decades to do that. But what you do see is the emergence of these uh, online 
uh, work integrated learning marketplaces like Ripen, R-I-I-P-E-N, where uh, faculty members can essentially shop uh, for a project with a real employer that they can incorporate uh, into their course as a capstone project. And students can spend a month working on that and get real feedback uh, from the employer and put that on their resume. So that's work integrated learning is one leg of the stool. The second is internships. Internships must be paid. Uh, they can't be unpaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they should be organized uh, by the, the college or university or even high school. Uh, and the third is apprenticeship. Apprenticeship is really uh, the only pathway that truly levels the playing field for everyone because it's a paying job uh, by definition. And uh, I believe in, in my new book, Apprentice Nation, I talk about the fact that a decade from now, uh, apprenticeship will be a very common way uh, to launch a career, whether right out of high school, uh, out of community college, or as a college graduate, to start as an apprentice, uh, whether you're uh, becoming a, a cybersecurity analyst, whether you're, you're becoming a Salesforce uh, administrator. These are all jobs that are going to have uh, well-established uh, apprenticeship pathways. We are already seeing that. My best friend in the whole world, his daughter, Leah, turned 18 recently. She's off to college in the fall. She is already having to line up certain things in front of her in terms of internships, in mm-hmm. terms of possible apprenticeships for that. And I think back, Sean and I were joking, I was thinking back to what I was worried about and trying to do, you know, when I turned 18, the summer before my freshman year, he was working at a bakery and, you know, could not get the smell of pumpernickel out of his nose. I was working at like a sporting goods store. I mean, just what people, what kids are having to kind of plan and think about right now. It's unbelievable. It's so cool because they're kind of lining this up, but it's just so different. It's so much of a change from what we've seen for decades. Well, it's a change and it's it's a change in a forward direction Correct. and it's a step back, Yeah, right? It is back to you didn't have to go to college. You could get an apprenticeship, join a union, be a plumber or an electrician or an HVAC guy or a stage manager. Right. And make a very nice living for a long, long time. And what's sort of eating away at the edges here for me, and I I say this as a creative person, um, as a writer, where does that leave people like us? I mean, chat GPT scares the pants off us. Right. Yeah, look, I, I think I think that uh, there's a, obviously a huge uh, uh, place for creatives. I think the challenge is squaring the creative with the circle of entry level, right? Where do you get your start? And what I would say is that I think you need to sort of harness uh, that creativity in a specific uh, uh, with some subject matter expertise and experience, right? Hopefully that you can focus on an industry, uh, you can focus on a topic, you can develop some expertise, and you can be relevant uh, in an entry-level position uh, for an employer uh, with that. But just simply coming out and saying, I'm a good writer, I can write anything, I think is going to be a lot harder now uh, than it was uh, when we were we were coming up a generation ago. And let me just agree with you, it's, it is going backwards. I mean, think about the founding of this country, right? George Washington apprenticed as a land surveyor. Paul Revere was a silversmith apprentice. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson became lawyers uh, via apprenticeship. It's really only since uh, the 1950s and 60s that college uh, became the sole pathway uh, to economic mobility in this country. Uh, And I think that now we're going to establish much more of a balance, which most other developed countries have done. On apprenticeship, the U.S. is is last 
among all developed countries. Uh, obviously, people will point to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Those countries are 15 times better than we are in terms of apprentices as a percentage of the workforce. But other countries, UK, Canada, France, Australia, they're eight times. Uh, they have eight times as many apprentices as a percentage of the workforce as we do. Uh, so whereas in the U.S., apprenticeship is, is pretty much localized in the construction trades. That's where you find it. Uh, in these other countries, it's very common to start a healthcare career, financial services career, tech career as an apprentice. Uh, we don't have that in, in my new book, Apprentice Nation. I talk about what we need to do to get there. I want to ask you about a prediction, mm -hmm. okay? And But kind of tell a, a quick story. So I graduated from Purdue University 20, 25 years ago. You're a boilermaker. I'm a boilermaker. I, too, am an English major, okay? I had not stepped foot on Purdue's campus for 25 years. Jonah, my son, went back, plays trumpet in a jazz band. They had a jazz festival there. It, it was the first time that I was back on campus in 25 years. I felt like country mouse, right? I was walking around. I kind of knew my way. The buildings were different. The old buildings where I studied, they still smelled the same, which was kind of <laughs> off-putting. But in terms of predictiveness, right, what are your predictions on what's going to happen with colleges and universities. So I, I don't think it'll be 25 years before I go back again, but what are you seeing as likely to happen with these institutions of higher learning now going forward? Well, look, uh, I think top, uh, you know, elite selective institutions, and I would put Purdue uh, in that category, uh, are probably not going to have to change very much. In fact, even though they have new buildings, uh, the reality is they haven't changed very much. If you right. look at the academic programs that they offer, uh, they yeah, they probably have a, a data science uh, program now, and they probably have more computer science offerings. But by and large, they're offering exactly the same majors and programs that they offered 25 years ago uh, when you graduated. So the allure and the brand remain so strong that they'll continue to have lines out the door uh, at those schools. It's the 90% of schools that are not selective uh, that uh, are going to have to adjust uh, because one thing we know now, the single biggest change uh, that we've seen in, in higher education is that when we all went to school, there were lots of reasons for enrolling. And today, there's one reason which is that I want to get a good first job. I want to, it's for my career. There needs to be a, a return on investment of simply because it's gotten so expensive. So that is the focus and non-selective institutions are going to have to do a lot of new things uh, if they want to survive and attract students uh, in this market and starting with uh, connection to, uh, to good jobs. And I think again, that rests on those three legs that I mentioned, work integrated learning, internship and apprenticeship. And what are you saying to those parents of high school juniors and seniors or even younger kids? What are you saying to the grandparents who want to help them along the way about how to smooth this path? Yeah, look, uh, not all colleges are created equal. Not all majors uh, are created equal. Uh, so look, if you get into a selective or even better, a highly selective uh, institution and you can afford it, there's no better pathway. Go do it, explore, become an English major you know, and find your path. The problem is that only that's about 10% of all students uh, sort of fall into that category. The other 90% are attending uh, non-selective institutions uh, that are by and large unaffordable for them, according to, you know, or their range of definitions of affordability, what you should be able to pay, uh, what you should be willing to borrow. And time was, I think up until about the Great Recession 15 years ago, 
it was always worth it. It would always pay off. And I think that we've come to realize that that's not the case. And students recognize that and are looking for uh, alternatives. Uh, so my focus is we need to build out a apprenticeship infrastructure in this country that's as big as our higher education infrastructure. We have 4,000 colleges and universities. Could we build 4,000 large-scale apprenticeship programs across the economy that are hiring as many apprentices uh, as these colleges are enrolling students? So that's what we're doing at Achieve Partners. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for your perspective. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from you and people like you in the years to come. And we'll look for the book when it comes out in November. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. And for those of you with kids or maybe grandkids in high school, or even if you're a younger person listening and thinking about your future, I hope that we've given you a little bit here to think about. It's an interesting and different way and important way, I think, Andy, to frame the conversation. I think it's absolutely okay for people to say that college isn't for everybody. You know, 100%. and so it, it shouldn't be, and it really can't be. You know, you've got trades, you have military, you have public service. My great-grandfather was a master plumber in 28 states, did not have more than an eighth-grade education. And this was at a time when, in the Depression, you would go to different states, he would send for the family and go around, but the things that he could do mechanically with schematics in his brain was unparalleled, right? And so at some point, I think that the concept of trades, the the military, just this non-college path it's been denigrated. And I think unfairly so, you know, my family has a history with the trade. So, so Ryan, when you talk about apprenticeships, when you talk about all these different things, there should be more trade school options out there. And when you have these career days and the principals or the superintendents come and they only talk about kind of college-based careers, there's mechanical schools out there. There's, you know, Cincinnati public schools. A dear friend of mine worked at summer camp with him. He was a uh, a ranger for 20 years with the state of Ohio as a as a police officer. Left, he's back at Earlham doing a master's of applied teaching. And he was talking to me about the Cincinnati Public Schools. They have dedicated trade high schools yes. for people who they want the education, they want the opportunity. So God forbid they fall as, you know, a linesman and three years down the road, they can't continue to do the trades. They've got the education in place. There needs to be more conversation with that. So this is fantastic that there is this amount of work and research and talk and and kind of a, a forward movement here because there's a ton of kids out there who this is right up their alley. I went to Wheeling Park High School in Wheeling, West Virginia. There was a welding department in the basement. Now, I, I, I'm sure there were many departments in the basement, and I didn't experience them. But I, I had experience with the welding department because when we put on Grease as our senior musical, they took a car and they turned it into a convertible for us. Yeah. Um, it provided a very needed path for the one-third of my high school class that was not college-bound. We are going to have to leave it there, but we will revisit this conversation again, I'm sure. Andy, thanks as always for being here. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to stream. And if you are looking to make important decisions about 
the educational path that your kids or your grandkids are going to take, it's always helpful to talk to a planner. So give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. Talk with one of the planners like Andy who can help you make some smart decisions in the months and years ahead. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.